Why should you visit Kings Island? Do it because less time planning means more time for this. Do it to take a one-day family vacation. Do it to catch a serious case of the giggles together. And of course, do it to eat a funnel cake the size of your face. Because here at Kings Island, doing something just for the fun of it is all the reason you need. Right now, everyone pays kids' price. Kings Island tickets just $45 online. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. The X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All-Hit Radio! Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. And welcome back, one and all. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, and we are still coming to you live and around the world from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to send us an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV, and our radio website at www.exxonradio.com. And uh, join our new Facebook group at www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Exxon Radio TV. My guest this hour, Exxon Nation, is Dennis Stone. He grew up at America Stonehenge and has been involved with the site for the last 55 years. And he has met a variety of researchers. Also a former full-time airline captain, Dennis has traveled extensively around the world to other ancient sites in Europe and North America. Dennis has been on numerous television and radio shows since 1970. When he's not flying, Dennis spends his time at America Stonehenge, where his wife Pat manages the day-to-day operation of the site. Their son Kelsey, who is an engineer, has taken an interest in ongoing research. Joining me now is Dennis Stone. And Dennis, welcome to the X-Zone. Good evening, Rob. Thank you for having me on this evening. America's uh, Stonehenge, where and what is it? Well, the place, uh, America Stonehenge, is located in southern New Hampshire. We're about 40 miles north of Boston, about 20 miles from the Atlantic Ocean, mm-hmm. and right on the Massachusetts-New Hampshire border. And what it is is a mystery. It's an archaeological mystery that, like you mentioned, it's been in my family for uh, 
several uh, decades now, and it's been under investigation actually for about a century, trying to figure out what it is, who built it, and how old it is, and what it was used for. Can you describe uh, how it relates to uh, Stonehenge? Everybody knows about Stonehenge, so how can we compare, um, you know, America's Stonehenge to the Stonehenge in the United Kingdom? Uh, yes, Stonehenge in England is, uh, you know, it's world famous. I think they get about a million visitors a year. But our site is similar in its function. Our site is astronomically aligned. Um, the work on this began in the 1960s. Um, mm-hmm. We knew that there were standing stones surrounding what we call the main site. Uh, we have about 110 acres. It's on a hill about 360 feet above sea level. And these standing stones um, were a mystery for many years. Nobody knew what these you know, represented. So in the 1960s, after a TV special on CBS called The Mystery of Stonehenge, I believe, which was based on a book by Gerald Hopkins called Stonehenge Decoded, it got the interest uh, of researchers at our place. Yes. Um, and they began to wonder whether we had alignments with the sun, moon, and stars like Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. And that's where it actually began about 50 years ago on that particular aspect of research. When you look at your Stonehenge, um, what do we know about its dating? How far does it go back? Is, does it go prior to the to the Vikings in this area? Or my gosh, oh, that's a great question. Yeah, everybody asks about the Vikings because, yeah. in fact, they just found the second Viking settlement up in uh, uh, Newfoundland just this year. Yeah, using satellite technology, which is pretty cool. So the Vikings are in the news again. Um, but it is much older than that. Uh, the carbon datings, we've done 16 of them, starting in 1967, I believe. Mm-hmm. And the oldest date of what we call the main site, where most of the stone structures are located, is about 4,000 years old, and that was taken in 1971. Mm-hmm. And right after that, 1973, we began surveying the um, astronomical alignments. We realized we needed a very accurate survey of these scanning stones and the walls surrounding the main site. Seven, they did what they called phase one of the survey. It took a couple of years to do it, and they also had uh, to raise some money to do the survey work, so it took a little while. But 1978, they sent the information to the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the results were that they said if these stones were used for astronomical purposes, they would work about 1800 B.C., wow. uh, plus or minus about two centuries. So that agreed with that 1971 carbon dating. <clears throat> Fascinating story, fascinating uh, guest explanation. We're talking about America's Stonehenge. We have to take a small break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. This is Dennis Stone, and the website is StonehengeUSA.com. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, on the Exxon Broadcast Network, and our family of broadcast affiliates right around this great big world. I'll be back as we continue talking about America's Stonehenge. ExoNation, visit this site, www.stonehengeusa.com. Dennis and I will return on the other side of this break. Whatever you do, don't go away. Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. 
Now on Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Gibbs A. Williams, Ph.D., is a practicing psychoanalyst, supervisor, researcher, and author in New York City. Much of his life has been dedicated to understanding nature and the uses of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. His radical and original non-Jungian, non-mystical, non-magical theory of synchronicities illuminates much of the fog surrounding this challenging and perplexing topic. His ideas and manners are fresh, presented in a style that is both entertaining and highly informative. He is also an expert on crisis intervention, specially focused on violence reduction for the police and citizens, mastering anxiety, frustration, and stress without the use of medication, and effectively preventing and treating heroin addiction. Dr. Williams can be contacted at his email address at gwwilliamsny11 at aol.com or visit his website at www.drgibbswilliams.com. Shamanism is recognized as a method to access the quantum level. Mastery of shamanic skills puts spiritual information and healing power into your hands. Path Home Shamanic Art School, a bonded Colorado certified occupational school, has met rigorous state standards ensuring its director and instructors have the qualifications to teach the shamanic arts. Path Home offers a certification program in blocks of study. Block 1, a five-day intensive, will be held in the beautiful mountain town of Coldale, Colorado, October 13th through 18th, Registration deadline is September 12th. Experience journey trance, power animals, helping spirits, sacred space, and life purpose. Come discover your power. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, in the magical world of shamanism. Call 303-775-3431 or visit findyourpathhome.com. Welcome back, everyone. How many of you remember going to school and learning all about Christopher Columbus on those three little ships that sailed over what they thought was the edge of the world? And he has been proclaimed as the, as the person who discovered the Americas. What a bunch of bull. You know, what about the Vikings? What about the Irish monks who got drunk one night at a pub in Dublin and rode across the Atlantic? Why do we need to lie in order to, to facilitate history? Dennis Stone is our special guest. We're talking about America Stonehenge because that is where Dennis grew up. The website is StonehengeUSA.com. And Dennis, how does it make you feel when you hear the myth or the lies that are being still shoveled down the throats of our youngsters that Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas? 
Yeah, kind of. It's uh, kind of frustrating, actually. You know, um, we know that the Vikings were in America 500 years before mm-hmm. that, and as you mentioned, Basque fishermen, possibly Portuguese. I think Columbus's right-hand man, um, Otto Winslow Pinson, who commanded the Pinta, uh, actually had been over in the Grand Banks of Canada 15 years before 1492. Mm-hmm. So even one of his own guys had already been over here. But it is kind of frustrating. There's so much evidence that seems to suggest that people are coming from the Mediterranean, from Africa, and from Europe into the New World. And on the other side, across the Pacific, from uh, Japan, Asia, and some other areas of the world coming into the Americas, actually. And it seems to be quite a bit of evidence uh, suggesting that, maybe even proving it. Looking at your site, America mm-hmm. Stonehenge, and it's un- it's unbelievable that this information isn't plastered all over the place and people aren't flocking to your site in order to get a better understanding and how this could correlate with the real history, uh, the real archaeology, the real story. Uh, do you find this frustrating? Yes. Uh, my, my late dad even said, you know, a well-kept secret. It's not our yeah. intention to do so. But it still is, you know, people are still finding out. Even in our own hometown, we have some visitors come in, they ask questions at uh, a local gas station perhaps, and the people locally are like, oh, I've never heard of that place, and they're only like a few miles away. But our school systems really are not, you know, teaching street very well anymore. if, If I was in your area, I would make sure that every school kid made a field trip to your location and that they were taught the history and and the richness because I I think there's so much more that we have yet to learn about our past. And in order to go forward into the future, we have to understand the past. Exactly. Yeah, my dad also said, you learn from the past, you don't learn from the future. So history is very, very, very important. And we do have a lot of school groups coming in, but they're usually from about 20, 30 miles away. We, mm. we don't even get some of the local ones. You know, we get, we get a few, yeah. but, um, you know, um, which is a shame, you know, right? It's in their backyard, basically. So tell me, what have you learned so far about early America based on America Stonehenge? Well, it looks like people are coming over here. We know the Vikings uh, came over a thousand years ago into Canada, and we think they made it into uh, possibly New England. There's some some evidence suggesting that. It looks like people were traveling the world much earlier in time and going much further on ships uh, than we give credit for or what we teach or acknowledge. And it looks like in New England and actually part of Canada down to the Mid-Atlantic states, Mm -hmm. there are approximately, um, excuse my voice, about 800 sites that may be related to our site. And there's a group called New England Antiquities Research Association, and they've been going for 52 years, and they've been researching these sites, uh, like I say, in Canada, throughout uh, the northeastern part of the United States. And we believe the pre-Columbian, a lot of these are pre-Columbian uh, structures, you know, and they have a very strong resemblance to what you find in Western Europe. <clears throat> People hear of Stonehenge and think that's it. There's about 50,000 megalithic sites in Europe. Uh, that continues into Russia, mm-hmm. it goes into China, India, and Korea. North and South Korea had over 100,000 what we call megalithic-type sites. They're on six out of seven continents. I just learned this year that Australia has an Australian Stonehenge. I was not aware of that, and I've been trying to find that out for a long time, but it was in the news. So six out of seven continents seem to have these megalithic sites, and they look very similar to each other. You know, the structures look very, very similar. The size, shape, and orientation mm-hmm. of these uh, particular, you know, structures. And our site has a lot of structures that will look like what you find in 
Portugal, whether you go to Scandinavia, whether you're in England or Ireland particularly, uh, very, very strong resemblance to those structures. Not only the size, the shape, but the orientation towards um, out of like true north towards a certain sunrise, like summer solstice, you know, that kind of thing. Now, is there, is there any indication whether or not it was the Druids who were responsible for this, uh, for this megalith? The Druids, I believe, were uh, too late to have built our site. I think, if I read correctly, and this is going back a number of years, I'm going to say something like a couple hundred B.C., the Druids are acknowledged to have, they're part of the Celts, you know, the ancient Celts. Now, on our site, they have found markings, and some of these are found during the 1960s and 1970s, and a gentleman named Barry Fell from Harvard University, um, he had a group called the Epigraphic Society. There's over 1,200 members in the group. He died in 1994, but during his life, he uh, studied these ancient traditions around the world. And the ones that were found at our site, he identified them as Libyan, Phoenician, and Celtic Ogham. Um, and they're not only found at our site, but up in Vermont, up in Canada, and again, mm-hmm. throughout, you know, down into the Mid-Atlantic states. And actually, in Alberta, Canada, in the Milk River, they found, I believe it was Ogham out there. Um, so going out towards the West Coast and into South America also. There's Phoenician writing down in Brazil. Um, and there's just so much of it, and it was found, some of this was found back in the 1800s uh, in, in South America and North America um, by, you know, early settlers, and that, mm-hmm. like, what are these stones? they got markings on them, and nobody could identify them until, you know, uh, more recently, people, oh, it's Phoenician or Libyan or Celtic or some other writing, you know? So, but our site has the three different types of languages that were found, and according to Barry Fell, and it's very controversial. Whoops, something just fired here. Oh, there you go. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to do that. Gremlins. Gremlins. <laughs> Fat fingers on a big guy. Uh, listen, is your site funded by the government, or are you are you recognized by the federal government or any of the historical federal uh, agencies? Not, uh, not federal, but state. In 1970, the state of New Hampshire uh, made us a state historic site. They put up a marker, and we're mm-hmm. on their register of state historic sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is kind of nice. Um, but the federal government, there's nothing, you know, and it is it is self-funded. Um, it is a, uh, my dad opened up the business in 1958. He was an engineer at AT&T Bell Laboratories, and he happened to be listening to a radio talk show out of Boston, uh, one of the biggest stations. It still is down there today. It's one of the biggest stations still. And it was called um, Yankee Yons. The talk show host was Alton Hall Blackington, and they were talking about these strange stone ruins. And this was back in 1955. Mm-hmm. And he had never heard of the place, and it really fascinated him. And a couple of days later at a barbershop, he's reading a New Hampshire Profile magazine, and there's a whole article featured in that, too. It was a 1952 article, so it had been sitting in the barbershop for three years. Wow. So that really got his interest. And that's how we, my family actually got involved uh, 60, I guess it was in 61 years ago, actually. Has there been any paranormal activity around <laughs> your, your Stonehenge? For example, orbs, um, uh, UFOs, uh, sightings of strange anomalies. Yeah, we have um, groups that come up, and they've been doing this for quite a few years, coming up in, in October and I think in September, and they'll come up, and we have people actually, um, they'll have a briefing in our theater. We'll have 20 or 30 people, and they'll ex- describe what type of equipment they're going to use and what they're going to see, mm-hmm. and then they go up on the site for a couple hours, and then they record you know, uh, both sound and, you know, with cameras. 
and they have different types of uh, pieces of equipment, which I really don't understand. And right. when I was flying, I usually was um, working weekends, so I missed most of this because it's usually on a Saturday or Sunday this is done. So mm-hmm. I think I attended only one out of all these years. But Hans Holzer, the gentleman who wrote um, Ghost I Met, and he's been on a lot of TV shows, he passed away not too long ago. Yeah. He brought in, I think it was Anya Seaton to our site back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. He also directed Lennon Nimoy's um, in show of. on us. In Search Of, yeah. Yep. He did that show back in 76. He actually, I guess he produced it or whatever, uh, directed it, I guess, you know. I've had and the pleasure so, of having uh, really Hans. interested in that site. Yeah, I've had the, <laughs> I, I had the pleasure of having Hans Holzer on the show a number of times. Oh, no. Wow. And in fact, oh. In fact, his daughter we've had on the show because she's following in her father's footsteps. I had heard that recently, that yeah. the dad had passed and the daughter was uh, carrying on, I think. She you know, is. I don't think I've met her. That, that's great to hear. Yeah, he was he was really good. He came a couple times to our place. Yep. And when he was there, Betty Hill, you know, the... the yeah, Betty and Betty Barney Hill, Hill sure. Uh, Betty came to our place. So I got to meet her, and then she remained a friend of my mom's for, uh-huh. uh, for a couple decades after well, that. It's a small world, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty. We meet a lot of interesting people for sure up there. Um, but people do say that the site has uh, mm-hmm. energy to it. Right. Um, you know, there's a certain feeling about it, um, and and so that's kind of good. I'm not totally sensitive to that type of thing, but I find it interesting. And we do have people that are very interested in that for sure. Jeff Belanger, he's been up there and he's written books. He has his own TV show. Yeah, Jeff's um, been a good good guest and a good friend to the XL. I've known Jeff for nearly 20 years. Oh. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's been up there, too. Yeah. And uh, he's brought a couple of people, one of the guys from that, I guess it's Ghost Adventures on Travel Channel. Um, I'm trying to think of the gentleman, there's three of them, and he brought one of them up, and I got to meet him briefly, but I forget his name, unfortunately. But he's one of the hosts of that show on travel. And uh, so, yeah, the paranormal thing is yeah. interesting to us. But we are doing a lot with astronomy and archaeology and geology and history and all of that at our site. There's a, it was part of the Underground Railway, for instance, you know. So it's a lot of a lot of history tied in with our site too. A lot of history. Um, Mm. When it comes to when it comes to the paranormal, uh, are you are you more or less leaning to the side of the of the? um, How do I best put this without putting my foot in my mouth and shooting it like I usually do? Uh, Do you you look at the scientific side, the astronomical side, or do you look at the paranormal side as as more of a meaning for your site? Hmm. Um, I've always been interested in science. So the astronomy, the archaeology, the geology of the hilltop always fascinates me. And of course, the history and ancient bolt navigation and travel, ancient mariners has been very interesting. But when they do have a paranormal thing, because I am very interested in that, I don't totally understand it. But, um, you know, now that I'm, re- I just retired from the airline, so yeah. I'm going to be spending more time in this fall, I'll probably have a chance to actually go up there and, and actually spend time with these, you know, when they do it during October. Mm-hmm. And I'd probably have more information after that, you know. But, um, but they've been doing that for a couple decades now. We've got about a, a minute and a half before I have to take my, uh, my next break. Um, in your opinion, has been the most awe-inspiring moment for you and America's Stonehenge? Oh, that's a great question. Um, she was um, recently, I can say something recently that happened. We seem to be finding these walls, and there are hundreds of acres of walls up there. Hmm. Um, and these walls look like big snakes. They're actually serpentine shaped, and right. they have like a head. Right. And they, they curve, and they curve linear. And we have about four of them, and these have only been discovered in the last uh, several months. We've been brush cutting up there, and these these run for a couple hundred feet, but they're not shaped like farmers' walls. These things are 
playing in these big hocking circles, like, or I'm sorry, big, big curves, and they go, and then they just start and stop <laughs> in, in the middle of nowhere, and they look like snakes. And the serpent seems to be a theme, theme or dragons or, or serp, serpents um, with ancient people. So um, we seem to have found a number of these on the site, and one by the Watch House, which is the first structure you visit. when you All right, Dennis, we've got to take our break. Please stand by, Exonation. Dennis Stone is our very special guest. Mm-hmm. Interesting it is not the right word for this topic, but we'll use it for now. Dennis Stone is our guest, www.stonehengeusa.com, and we'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. My name is Rob McConnell. Don't go away. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exome Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, High Tech with Corey Kay, and every minute of the 24-7, 365 programming of the Exome Broadcast Network by calling 712-432-9459, courtesy of TalkStream Live. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 712-432-9459 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 712-432-9459 for the best of paranormal, new age, thought-provoking, sci-fi radio programming 24-7, 365. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized, the truth cannot be known. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. Join me on the Science of Magic radio program, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. From astrologers to astronomers, from medical doctors to shaman, the scientific method to dowsing and intuition, we'll weave together information from seemingly divergent practices to promote unity and enlightenment. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, and the Science of Magic right here on the Mutual Broadcast Network. For more information, visit www. 
thescienceofmagic.net. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. And welcome back, everyone. This is The Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on The Exxon Broadcast Network, the Digital Broadcast Network, the Digital Radio Network, and I can name the other 14 or 15 other networks that we're on, but that would take too long, and I'll get back to my guest this hour. His name is Dennis Stone, his website, StonehengeUSA.com. And uh, D- Dennis, I- I'm still amazed that more people do not know about your, your treasure that you have. And it's not that you're concealing it. You're not hiding it from anybody. You're not hiding it from, from the schools, the, the hobbyists, the visitors. I don't understand why you guys aren't flooded all the time with people. Yeah, we wonder that too. That's probably the biggest frustration we have there um, is uh, people being aware of the site. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, like I was saying, we were not trying to hide this. I, you know, we advertise, sure. uh, we've been on a lot of different TV shows over the years, you know, starting in the late, late sixties, mm-hmm. but it's just still, it's still people just don't know about us. Even some of the local, you know, people in our town don't know about us, which is a shame, you know, uh, and then school systems don't seem to be teaching history. So that's another part of it, getting people planting the seed, getting people interested in history. So, sure. um, you know, it is, it, it is very difficult. Yeah. And it's, it is very frustrating that more people don't know about us, but, you know, I talk to a lot of schools and teachers and chaperones that come mm-hmm. to our place, and they're not even aware of a lot of the mounds out west, and there are thousands of yeah. mounds that were built. And some of these, uh, you know, like uh, Cahokia, one of the biggest earthen pyramids in the world, you know, with 120 you know, other structures around it, mm-hmm. pyramidal structures. World, It's a United Nations World Heritage Site, and the teachers go, oh, there's, there's uh, pyramids in the United States. Wow. You know, you get that all the time, and because the kids look at you and the parents look at you like you're crazy, you know. Uh, so it's not just our site either, no, so I'm aware of that. You know, and those sites are accepted as ancient. Our site is, you know, somewhat controversial as to, you know, what it is, you know. Uh, so it's even a little more difficult for us. I understand at your site <clears throat> there's a sacrificial table. Now, is is there evidence that human or animal sacrifices actually took place on it? Yeah, there's no evidence, but there is technology today. Uh, it's called, I think, protein analysis. You can take a um, an arrowhead or a spear point mm-hmm. or maybe even the sacrificial table, and if there's a fissure inside of it, a microfissure they call it, and it has blood, and it can go back uh, 10,000 years, I think, to be able to date back to, um, you can actually extract that, and they can tell you it was animal, what type of animal, or whether it was human. 
And all these years we've been at our site, we looked at the table, and there are cracks all over it. And we always wondered, is there some sort of technology that would be able to tell us whether there was a sacrifice on the table? We didn't know. And in the last uh, year or two, I became aware of this this um, um, type of, um, you know, uh, that uh, what do you call it? Um, <laughs> some lost for words at this moment. But this, but this protein analysis, you can actually... Uh, send the material to a laboratory if you can extract it if it's if it is there in the first place and they can tell you you know the date they can tell you right. the type of you know animal it's so cool so there is that and there is a lot of uh, modern technology satellite technology there's laser scanning there's actually you can date the soil next to say a structure or a wall of a structure and this OSL they call it optically stimulated luminescence and I think the technology is there today that we can actually prove the site how old it is. Uh, definitely without any, you know, people questioning the date. The carbon dating will mm-hmm. support that, and the astronomical work would support that. But you can actually take the soils. You have to take a core. You have to preserve it, send it to a laboratory, and you have to actually do several samples, like a baseline couple samples sure. and a couple samples on the wall. And you can do walls. You can do structures. in that soil, particularly at the bottom where the oldest dirt would be, because soil very slowly accumulates upward, of course, you send that to a laboratory, and they can tell you when that soil saw, last saw the light of day. And that would give you kind of an idea when that wall was built. The problem is it's thousands of dollars, you know, to test one structure, for instance, you know, and that's one of the biggest problems right now. If there was money available, funding available, I think we could do laser scanning. We could do that Worldview 3 satellite imaging that they just found that second Viking uh, settlement in, uh, up in Newfoundland. Right. And... Um, and OSL testing, and there's some other tests too. We could do ground penetration radar. We've used that at our site back in the 1990s. The company is a next door neighbor, but now they've moved about 20 miles away. And unfortunately, we don't. They were bringing their equipment up there, testing it and showing it to customers, and we lost that because they moved away, which was a shame. You know, so I think technology will help to prove our site someday. You've traveled all over the world, and uh, in your travels, I'm sure you've visited other megalithic sites. And are there many? similarities between the other sites that you visited and America Stonehenge? Uh, yes, yeah. A lot of our visitors that do travel overseas uh, remark about that also, you know, that, yeah, it's our site over in Scotland. It looks so much like your site. But there are particular chambers, like the, um, on our site, like we call the East-West Chamber. It looks very much what, like they call a gallery grave. And these are found in France, they're found in Holland, and they're found in mm-hmm. Northwestern Ireland. They always run 20 to 60 feet in length. They're kind of rectangular in shape. They're used for burials, and they always run east and west out of true north, and our structure does that. And then when the structure next to it, we call it the V-hut. It's shaped like a V, and it faces southwest. The rest of the uh, site, everything Mm -hmm. is north, south, east, and west out of true north, but that structure faces southwest. If you go to Ireland, you find the wedge tombs. My dad and I were over there in the early 80s, and we saw a number of these wedge tombs, and some vary in size and shape, but we saw a couple that looked just like our structure, and they always face southwest, the size, the shape, and the orientation. And then there's a self-facing structure. We call it the lilac chamber because there's some lilacs planted by a family that was up there in the 1800s on the roof of the structure. And in Ireland, they call them fugus. And the fugus, uh, the size and shape of the structure, some of them, like in County Meath, Ireland, is one that looks just like our structure. So there is a strong resemblance. And even the table you mentioned before, there's... Yes. We have photographs from Spain of a couple of, um, and Portugal too, of a very similar type of slab with a groove on it. Mm-hmm. One of them was shaped like a maple leaf with a big groove. They think it was used for sacrificial purposes. They don't know over there, and we don't know over here either. 
but our table's nine feet long, it's six feet wide, and it weighs about four and a half tons, and it sits on four legs. And the groove on top of it, actually, we discovered this year is not rectangular in shape, it's a trapezoid. And so I started measuring because of comment by one of our researchers that he thought it was a later addition, probably in the 1800s, and it was English measurements. And when we went up there and started measuring it, it was like 49 inches wide, 67 long, and then the next day we went up and measured the top of it, the groove, and it was 41. And these aren't, you know, these don't come out with units, uh, equal units of measure. It actually, it's odd, like an odd measurement. So mm-hmm. I divided what we call the megalithic yard into it, 32 inches, 0.68, and this is used in European sites by the ancient builders going back thousands of years. This measurement divides into what I just told you. Mm-hmm. So the bottom of the table, uh, the groove, is two megalithic, I'm sorry, megalithic and a half wide. The top is 1.25 and the length of it is 2 megalithics, but the width of the table is 2.5 megalithics, and the top of the table is 2 megalithics wide, and the table sits 1 megalithic yard off the bedrock at the top of the table. So we started measuring other structures, and this unit comes up over and over. A guy named Roscoe Whitney in the 1930s that did the first, he was up there with the first researchers, and he was from MIT, he was an engineer, and one of his comments when he was measuring the site using a plane table, doing profiles and plan views of the site, he said, I don't know what unit of measure was used to build this. There isn't any that I know of. You know, It's very, very strange. Um, we think perhaps this is a piece of evidence supporting old world, this, this unit of measure. So um, so that's something that we just kind of discovered recently. That's one of the, you, may, you asked me for something. That was yeah. one of the things this year that kind of really got our interest going. Tell me about the Ibex petroglyph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the Oracle Chamber, it's the biggest structure still remaining on the site. It's attached to the Oracle, uh, to the sacrificial table. The Oracle Chamber had a number of features, including two inscriptions. One of them is ibex. If you look at it, it's like a, some people call it the running deer carving, but it looks like an ibex, actually, because the, the antler is kind of, it kind of curves mm-hmm. over the back of the animal, if you will. It really doesn't look like a deer. Um, and the other carving in there was an arrow carving, kind of facing the, the winter solstice sunrise. That chamber also has five closets, two underground drains. It has a chimney flue with two stone louvers, and has a bed that somebody could lay in with a wind with a stone window. <laughs> and it has a speaking tube, or oracle tube, that goes through right through to the sacrificial table. So the ibex could be something like a vision quest, where somebody was inside that chamber, and they would. We know Native Americans did that. You know, sometimes they would mm-hmm. actually make a mocking of some animal. It was supposed to be spiritual to them, something like that, that would help guide them and protect mm-hmm. them. So when we look at that little tabbing in there, we wonder if that's, you know, could have been something like that. Are there any other sites around your place within, a, let's say, a 50-mile uh, radius? Uh, yes, there are. Yeah, there's um, directly south of us is a effigy mound shaped like a turtle. Mm-hmm. It's in North Andover, Massachusetts. It's right on our south alignment, which is one of these cool things. It's like, wow, it's, it's true south of our site. We don't know if that was intentional or just a coincidence. But within a, about a 50-mile, I would say there's probably about uh, three or four dozen structures. And these are big, dry stone constructions, very similar to ours. No cement was used to put the structures together. And no modern tool markings hmm. where they were actually coring these stones. You'd see it uh, historically in a lot of sites where the, you know, the drill marks are. Yeah. And they used to plug and feather the split. You don't find that on our site except where the quarrymen in the 1800s came in and left about 16 of them. But the table and the socket, the bedrock where the table came out of, and a lot of these roof slabs, some way up to 14 tons, 
you don't find the uh, the drill marks there at all. So whoever built our site extracted stone using stone uh, like stone age technology, I guess. You know, they use percussion flaking using stone against stone, striking it, yeah. and they're shaping the stones. So that's something we discovered back in the 1970s that it was a stone age technology, not a metal age technology used to quarry the original you know stone used on the on the site. I, I understand that your site is actually built on an earthquake fault. Mm. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, and I, and I think a number of these uh, sites that we, you know, I mentioned there's quite a few around us mm-hmm. have that similar kind of thing. And there is a joint that goes right to the center of our hill. The whole hill is split right in half, and they took advantage of this to extract stone. Some of the big roof slabs, like that 14 ton one I just mentioned, one of those came from right out of that crack. And the crack goes right into the earth. It goes out to the ocean, and actually it runs into what they call the Clinton Newbury Fault Line, which is off the um, off our coast. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, during earthquakes, because the whole hill moves, and there's a lot of quartz in it. And some people, you know, think that maybe ancient people built these sites uh, on earthquake fault lines, and when there's earthquakes, it would give off a glow, you know, this piezoelectric effect, and all of that, and it affects your senses and all that. I'm not sure if I understand that or buy into that. But um, a lot of these sites are located near fault lines. Have there have there been any tools or any utensils or or artifacts found on your site? Yeah, a lot of people say there's no artifacts uh, except for historical. When the Patty family first came there in the 1700s, mm-hmm. they were shoemakers. Five generations, three, uh, the first three generations uh, lived on the hilltop, and then they sold the land. So we found a lot of historic stuff, but we also found um, hammer stones, rubbing stones, stone scrapers. Hmm. Uh, we have a nice stone hoe. We have uh, stone, you know, arrowheads. Um, and actually, I guess it's, well, it's a, it's a long arrowhead. It was not really a spear point. Uh, stone knives. And actually, again, we found these stone hammers where they were actually striking these stones to sh- what we call dress the stone, to shape the stone. So, um when they did the carbon dating in 1967, 69, and 1971 on this particular structure called the Chamber of Ruins, that's where they found some of these stone tools also, including stone wedges. Very so, interesting. Yeah, a lot, of different, a lot of stone tools are found there. Yeah. All right, Dennis, please stand by. You and I have to take our final break for this hour. Exxon Nation, Dennis Stone is our very special guest. Dennis, thank you so much for being with us. This is very, very exciting to hear that, wow, history is so rich. And yet we, we know so little about it. At least the truth is what we know little about. Visit Dennis's website, StonehengeUSA.com, and we'll be back on the other side of this break as we wrap up this hour here in the X-Zone from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. My name is Rob McConnell. Don't go away. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. 
Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exome Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, High Tech with Corey Kay, and every minute of the 24-7, 365 programming of the Exome Broadcast Network by calling 712-432-9459, courtesy of TalkStream Live. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 712-432-9459 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 712-432-9459 for the best of paranormal, new age, thought-provoking, sci-fi radio programming 24-7, 365. Coming soon to the Exxon Broadcast Network is a different perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as your host. We'll be taking a close look at what is happening in the world of UFOs today with side trips into the paranormal. Guests will range from those who are household names to those who have a different perspective on a variety of topics. No topic will be taboo, but there will be tough questions asked as we all search for the truth about UFOs, the paranormal, and those things that excite us. Sometimes we'll agree with a guest and sometimes we won't, but we'll try to keep the program topical. For those of you who would like to read, be sure to visit www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and remember to listen to the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at www.xzbn.net. This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. What Happened in Benghazi is revealed by Nicholas Genix, author of Obama, Islam, and Benghazi. He informs the American people that President Obama deceived them by advocating a strong foreign policy prior to the 2012 presidential election, and Hillary Clinton supported this deception. As the title infers, there is a connection between Obama, Islam, and Benghazi. 
Ample evidence informs Americans that Obama's early indoctrination in the Quran developed an infinity for Islam, why the Quran is the source of discontent in many countries, and why the Obama foreign policy deception led to poor military action and caused the loss of American lives in Benghazi. GeneX provides 36 questions for the Select Committee on Benghazi to validate if Americans are justified to mistrust President Obama and Hillary Clinton. An overview of Obama, Islam, and Benghazi is presented on the website www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. Afterlife expert Roberta Grimes was the first one to say that dying can be fun. Now her best-selling book, The Fun of Dying, is available in stores worldwide. So if you wonder whether death ends life, how it feels to die, or what heaven might be like, The Fun of Dying was written for you. And if you have always been afraid of death, or if you worry that your life has no meaning, let The Fun of Dying ease your fears and bring new meaning to your life. Nothing said in The Fun of Dying is based on the teachings of any religion. Instead, Roberta draws on evidence to explain how death happens, how it feels, and what comes next. A lot of the best death-related evidence was produced in the first half of the 20th century. When it is put together with recent discoveries, it tells a consistent and amazing story. Roberta Grimes blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Her wonderful book, The Fun of Dying, is available on Amazon and at stores worldwide wherever books are sold. Explanation, uh, Dennis Stone is our special guest, www.stonehengeusa.com. During the break, you and I were discussing a, um, a line that has been found, your, uh, that was found a couple of years ago, and I was it, uh, who, who found the line and what is the significance of it? Uh, yes, Rob, yeah, um, that was pretty cool. Um, I should have said that earlier when you asked about something that was really neat that we found. Uh, it was about four years ago. My son, uh, his name is Kelsey. He's mm-hmm. an engineer. And following in the footsteps of my dad, who was an engineer, but uh, he was, um, uh, it was during uh, uh, the summer, I guess, of 2012, and he was using Google Earth to look at other sites. As you mentioned, there are other sites around us, and he was uh, looking at the astronomical alignments, see if any of these other sites are on these alignments, you know, coincidentally or intentionally sure. or whatever. And he was looking at the summer solstice um, alignment, sunrise, and it's a cool stone. It actually has kind of a slope top to it. It's asymmetrically shaped. When we opened that clearing up in the 1970s, we found that the horizon has the same shape as the top of the rock. And in Europe, they call them horizon features. Mm-hmm. So you had the point you stood at was a stone circle, elliptical shape, the top of the rock, which is sloped. And the sun on uh, June 21st or 20th will rise 90 degrees to the top of that, uh, that slope, actually. And the far distant hill, which is about five miles distant. So my son just took a Google Earth and went just across New England, went into, across New Hampshire into Maine and then into Canada, and um, just to see if anything popped up because um, some of these sites are, are listed. We have some of the coordinates of these sites, but he went right across, uh, right across the Atlantic Ocean for kicks, and he noticed it went across England. You know, so mm-hmm. as he changed the scale of it in England, it was in southern England. He said, well, "That's kind of neat because he's been over. We've been over to Stonehenge a couple times." Uh, He's been over there, I think, twice. And as he enlarged it, he saw it went very close to Stonehenge. And as he kept, you know, changing the scale, it's like, wow, it goes through Stonehenge. And then he actually, the picture of Stonehenge comes up, and it blind goes right through the 
the trilathon, you know, the horseshoe shape of the five yes. trilathons, yeah. so it goes right through the, the, the tallest one right in the center. It goes right through it. And some people think this is something to do with ley lines, you know, and a guy named Alfred Watkins from England uh, sort of discovered this, I think, in the 1800s. And uh, today people have taken this and they think that ancient sites were set up on special places of the earth. And they call it sacred geometry. So sites are set up in these special energy points and that they're kind of in a line with one another. Um, and it is interesting. And it's either a very strange coincidence or it was intentional. But when you were looking at our summer solstice sunrise, the, uh, you're actually looking at right through, right through the uh, center of Stonehenge. And we never knew that until four years ago. My dad had just passed away. I think it would have been kind of neat to, for him because he had been watching that sunrise for years. and never, never, We never knew that, you know. So um, my son also looked at a couple other ones, like our south alignment goes very close to Machu Picchu, mm-hmm. and, our, and our winter solstice sunset goes right near Tihuacan down in Mexico, which we've been to also, near the Moon Pyramid. But the one that really got us was that one over Stonehenge, because it goes right through the center of Stonehenge. So it's pretty cool. Um, you're having an event on September the 22nd. Can you share it with us? Yeah, we have... Um, on the 22nd will be the uh, Fall Equinox, and uh, there's going to be, I think actually they're going to do the celebration on the 24th. We have actually, there's a lady that's from the Netherlands, she comes over and she puts on this kind of ceremony, and it's kind of um, very colorful, it's kind of, I guess, neo-Druid, I guess, uh, and uh, she's been doing it for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. The Travel Channel actually filmed it one year doing it. We had about a thousand people there. It was a summer solstice event in that case. But yeah, we'll be celebrating the Equinox sunrise and sunset. And then the one after that will be the winter solstice again. Um, and uh, in the past, we've had music and everything. But she'll be just having a ceremony. It'll be about a three-hour ceremony, and people are welcome to join in on this. And it'll be, uh, we'll be open in the morning from sunrise, and uh, we'll be hoping for the sunset on that, on that particular day. So but we, have the, uh, we have the four seasons, and we have cross-quarter days, which is the May Day, uh-huh. uh, August 1st, November 1st, and February 1st. And this is what ancient people did in European sites. And we also have alignments with the uh, moon through its 18-and-a-half-year cycle also. So they were observing the sun, moon, and certain stars at our site. What is the importance of the ball stone? I believe it's pronounced ball or bal stone. Yeah, ball. Yeah, ball or bale, yeah. Uh, that stone, um, well, we do have the May 1st alignment, mm-hmm. and it's about a 10-foot monolith. And May Day is actually the beginning of summer in ancient calendars, and they had the the Beltane fires, and it's something that the Celts, uh, was one of the biggest celebrations, was, uh, it was the beginning of the uh, fertile season, the growing season, and again, the beginning of summer. Midsummer would be June 21st, today we call it the first day of summer, and the end of summer would be August 1st, but it's a cross-quarter day. It's one of the days, as I mentioned, November 1st is another one, All Saints Day, that's another important mm-hmm. day, that's the end of fall, the beginning of winter, and midwinter would be December 20th or 21st. The end of winter would be February 1st or 2nd, the beginning of spring, and then you get into the spring equinox, which is in um, April. I'm sorry, excuse me, it's um, yeah, it's in March, March 20th or 21st. And then you have May Day again, which again is the end of spring, the beginning of summer. And we have a stone there, it's 39 days, it says on there, and according to Barry Fell, that stone, uh, he has it a date and everything, but it pertains to the celebration of Beltane. So hmm. we have that in our museum, actually. But the 10-foot monolith is still out there in the woods. It, it's, we opened up the clearing, and it's fallen. It would be kind of neat to have it standing. But we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't do that without 
excavating all around it, doing some of those those testing, you know, to see how long it's been laying sure. there and everything. But it's something we always wanted to stand up, but we never touched. It's it's always been laying there. What can visitors going to America's Stonehenge find in your museum? Yeah, we have an indoor um, exhibit of artifacts that have been found over the last, uh, since the 1930s, when the first archaeological work began. And we have a nine-minute video presentation, a theater, where it's an orientation film. And then um, you take a tour up the uh, nature trail, you come to the wash house, and we have about 110 acres. We open about 20 acres of that land. Uh, uh, that's what we can see, the astronomical trail, the main right. site. And um, outside of that, we open the rest of it in the wintertime for snowshoeing, so you can see the entire hilltop, including a glacial cliff where Native American pottery was found, and including a very large bowl, which dated to around 2,000 years old. So that's, that's open in the winter. Well, we open about 20 acres uh, during the normal seasons. Is there any speculation or has anything been discovered why the site was, um, you know, suddenly abandoned by whoever lived there? No. Um, yeah, that's a great question. What happened to the people? And that, that's a question that happens to a lot of these ancient mm-hmm. sites. But one thing we did discover in the last few years, and my son was kind of involved with that during the time, um, 2012, he was out there we cleaning some of the astronomical trails, he found a lot more of these large quarry stones. Some of these weigh several tons. They were actually lifted off the bedrock, propped up with a stone, and then he started working the edge of it with, with a stone hammer, what they call, again, percussion plate, uh, percussion um, hammering. And uh, we found about, uh, we knew about a dozen of these back in the 1980s. We thought that was it. Mm-hmm. He found about another dozen. And this year we found another, um, I guess he found another five or six of these. Oh. And some of these are a thousand feet from the main site, so they had a big project, we think, uh, in mind. But they never, they never completed it. So it was a work in progress, and they walked away from it. So it was a bigger surprise to us more recently, you know, than we used to think. We thought they probably completed the site pretty much, and it was almost done. And then something happened to the people. It looks like they really had a much bigger project in mind. What is your speculation on the importance of your America Stonehenge? Well, I'll probably change history. We think the site will show that people did travel across the ocean, you know, mm-hmm. probably 3,000 years before the Vikings and, you know, 3,500 years before Christopher Columbus, that people were actually traveling the oceans. And, um, you know, so Columbus was not the first European to, to our shores, you know. So it would change history. It would add certainly a new chapter to our history. And, um, you know... It's hard to tell, you know. Mm-hmm. What, you know, hundred. I often wonder what you know. A hundred years from now, we'll be talking about us and what people say about our site. But I think we'll change our history books. What are your final thoughts for the listening audience of the Exxon Nation tonight about America's Stonehenge? Well, it's a. It's definitely a mystery, um, and that's something we're trying to solve. You know, who built the site? Mm-hmm. Where did they come from? What happened to these people? And uh, these other sites that are found all over the Northeast, you know, related to these same people, that's a question we don't know. But there's so many um, legends and uh, so many pieces of evidence that old world visitors came over here. And I mentioned some of the things like place names, you know, the same words on both sides sure. of the ocean, inscriptions, we have the structures. And there's even like Verrazano, the explorer who saw in Narragansett Bay when he got there, um, Native Americans, but some of them had blue eyes, some had blonde hair. Um, and it looks like, you know, some people from Europe came over, intermarried with the Native Americans before Columbus, and, and the Mandan Indians out west of Thomas Jefferson um, mm-hmm. was looking for, 
he thought that they were welch, you know. And they did find some mandans. Some of them had blue eyes and blonde hair, I guess, or light-colored hair. So it looks like old-world people were coming before Columbus. What so are the, Columbus, what, there's no thing saying no explorers before Columbus, but I think that's wrong. I agree with you 100%. What are some of the comments you hear from visitors at America's Stonehenge? Uh, more in you know more recent years, uh, people seem to be a little bit more open minded. They they very usually the place is impressive. Mm-hmm. Wow, you're quite a sight up there, you know that kind of thing. In the past, there's a little bit more skepticism. I think in the right. '60s and '50s, you know, when we first opened, but I think people might be a little bit more open minded. Uh, and I think because of new technology and more finds that people were coming over. I mean, the coins that are found. Uh, there was a coin found at the mouth of the Merrimack River. That would be the way that you would come up to our site. The Merrimack runs within four miles of our site, and it's one of the larger rivers in New England. And they found a Phoenician coin, I think, in 2010 hmm. near the mouth of the river during construction of, I think, of a house that was, was buried in the ground. So that was kind of an interesting find, too, you know, they sure found is. by where they would enter, you know, that kind of. So the find can slowly like that. Dennis, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, we have to say so long for now. Keep us abreast of what's going on at your site, and uh, to you and yours, all the very best, and thank you so much for sharing your history with us tonight here on the Exxon. Well, thanks so much, Rob, and thank your listeners. I really had a real nice time, and I enjoyed uh, talking to you. Thank you very much. As we did you, my friend. Exxon Nation, for more information about Dennis Stone and Stonehenge America, visit www.stonehengeusa.com. I'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. My name is Rob McConnell. Visit our site, www.exxonradio.com and our network at xzbn.net. Why should you visit Kings Island? Do it because less time planning means more time for this. Do it to take a one-day family vacation. Do it to catch a serious case of the giggles together. And of course, do it to eat a funnel cake the size of your face. Because here at Kings Island, doing something just for the fun of it is all the reason you need. Right now, everyone pays kids' price. Kings Island tickets just $45 online. 